Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Before I ever was going to be here for the talk, I was envisioning myself throwing this mask as though it was like a graduation. <laughs> but in this event, I'll just please ask you to excuse me and that I'll be taking off and to offer this talk to you. So, in according to tradition, this is often a time that we'd acknowledge Buddha Shakyamuni and the ancestors. And I know early on, I kind of felt this element of, okay, you know, it's part of this process. You do these things. But I can say over the years, it just feels natural. It's a part of the living practice. And you can't help but feel the ancestors, starting with Buddha Shakyamuni, here with us at this time. So... With deep gratitude to all those who have carried on this tradition, this practice, so that we can be here to really awaken. I can't imagine my life without it and all the people who have facilitated uh, throughout the years to both be in the practice and to support me in it. Um, and just that community has been, at least for myself, probably the most powerful impact of, of this practice, the Sangha. I really see it as the living embodiment of this Buddha Dharma. Um, and without the Sangha, yeah, what would we be doing? <laughs> so, I'd like to thank Shinge Roshi, uh, our beloved teacher, someone who I uh, had the immense fortune of encountering 15 years ago. And since that time, it's been an instrumental and just vital part of my life, a bond which I can't really describe. And yeah, it's just the beauty of so much of it is just unspoken. And one of the things that I really appreciated early on in my time of practicing at Hoenji, I started there, as I mentioned, uh, 15 years ago. Uh, there was a deep presence class. I'll revisit some of that later. But around that time, uh, sometime within the first few years, I remember Roshi saying that her practice was about being raw. And it left really a mark on me. There was just something about that that has stayed with me since that time. And something that I really feel at this time. Um, yeah, a vulnerability of which I, in many ways, always wanted, but not necessarily with some of the uh, effects that come out of that. Um, <laughs> but I find great inspiration, in it really. I mean, through that process of really being able to be open and available and to meet people where they are, um, I've just found, yeah, a tremendous gift in that. I just find that in many ways, like dynamics between my exchanges with people have just subtly shifted. Um, and yeah, certainly as also with myself, there's that element in having to be vulnerable with myself in order to be vulnerable with others. So it's been a real gift for me. Um, and I also like to thank my parents, my sister and family. Um, yeah, they definitely don't necessarily understand what I'm doing but have always been in full support. Um, there's times you can tell there's a curiosity, which I 
haven't quite figured out how to offer in a way in which that feels more accessible. All I can think I think of in some ways, my mother was a teacher, um, and it was something clearly for her. She very, yeah, very deeply connected with that. It was definitely a calling for her. And I think that's about all I can equate it to. There's this element in which that you have to answer that call. And so I've been continuing on in the practice and have had their support and feel very fortunate knowing that not everybody has that. Um, and the residents of DBZ, um, I've been coming here for some years. Um, and I guess in terms of residents, really starting back in 2011, um, for those that have been around, there was certainly a lot of tumult through that time period and the years thereafter. But uh, the people who were around and the people that I got to really delve into this practice with here and yeah, really get to start to experience the depth of the training, the, really the profundity of yeah, having my whole notions turned upside down and wrung out and torn apart. Um, and just really their willingness to support the Sangha, this community, through that whole process was really inspiring in many ways. Uh, it's something that their impact and influence on me is, yeah, I can't really measure it. Um, there's still people that I love and in many ways miss. Um, and then, of course, there's, we have our current residents, people who I've gotten to know in some ways very intimately. Um, as I was saying, just this way in which my experience of meeting with people, engaging with them, has definitely changed. And they've really been instrumental in that process. Uh, just their own willingness to be vulnerable. Yeah, talk about things that are very painful. And knowing for myself, like, that can be a very, very difficult process. Uh, I guess I'll kind of lead into that in a little bit, but I can say my own path, like, just being able to simply speak of what I was going through was something that I felt really imprisoned by. Um, and then in the spirit of Son Roshi, who I have a very deep affinity with, um, this universal Sangha relation, all the known and unknown sentient and sentient beings. Um, yeah, I'm sure for each of you, you have so many people in your lives that have facilitated you being here. Um, and then all the people that you didn't know, um, just all the other things, the yeah, the flowers, the rocks, the trees, you know, this great earth, um, and beyond the realm of just this uh, universe. And I found in the process of reflecting on when I was asked to do this talk that really the recitation that we did this morning, Faith in Mind, uh, Sosan Kanchi Zenji, our third ancestor in China, um, has impacted me in ways that I didn't, I haven't really grasped, and I definitely don't really now, but it just continues to be ever revealing in this process. Um, and yeah, a profound gratitude for Sosan Kanchi Zenji of the faith in mind recitation that each time we recite it, something else just seems to turn. In some ways, yeah, just something is. the little light dusting. There's something that comes forth that I hadn't seen previously, some detail. 
Um, and in that detail, it opens up to something far beyond what I can conceive. So in looking at Sosan Kanchi Zenji's Faith in Mind, I feel that my challenge today is best summed up by the following passage. Wordiness and intellection, the more with them, the further astray we go. Away, therefore, with wordiness and intellection, and there is no place we cannot pass freely. When we return to the root, we gain the meaning. When we pursue external objects, we lose the essence. The moment we are enlightened within, we go beyond the voidness of a world confronting us. So I'll start by, I guess, giving a little introduction to myself. I mean, really, in many ways, I know you all. Um, some I'm just meeting more recently. Um, but I'm sure that by virtue of being here in this practice, many of you encounter this. It certainly comes up with some frequency that we sit together, we share all this time, there's a deep intimacy, and then we part ways. And there's people that you have this really amazing connection with that you have never shared a word with. You don't even know their name. And it is really an amazing gift. Um, and yet I have found there is a certain power in just having some of those narratives. They don't necessarily give you an insight exactly into how that person is, but it can be revealing, if nothing else, even in terms of your own life and some of the things that you relate and connect with, uh, ways that you don't necessarily know that you like share certain connections, even connections with other people. So I'll just go a little bit into my own path of how I came to the practice. Um, I was born in the Milwaukee area out in Wisconsin, um, Midwestern boy, um, and in many ways had a kind of a typical upbringing. Uh, my parents, uh, sister, um, and grew up with a dog who I mostly, I guess, want to talk about because, I don't know, she was just such a wonderful dog. She was a German shepherd that uh, had, a, in many ways, a really big impact on my life as well. Um, so when I was little, my sister, she's actually younger than me, um, so a couple of years. So I, when we were little in particular, I really looked after her. Um, yeah, I just wanted to make sure she was always safe. And in some ways, the element of why that was important was best summed up by our father, um, which he indicated that really the difference between us is if there's a cliff, my sister would be the one that you run, you jump over it, and you find out what's on the other side as you're in the air. And I would be the one that would go up to the edge and assess <laughs> before I would make any determination of what to do. Um, so she had a little bit more of that rambunctiousness, a kind of free-spirited element. So I just made sure to look after her um, <laughs> and helped her get through some of those times. And yeah, I'm really grateful just for her presence in my life. Um, and one of the wonderful things within the context of my family is just knowing that I was always loved. Um, I never had any question of that. Uh, you know, we, of course, had our own family problems, things that would come up, and yet there was never any way in which I felt that that was in question or jeopardized. Um, and it was, you know, as I said, was something that still comes through in the fact of just them unconditionally supporting me in continuing and being in this practice. Um, and then, I, I guess mostly partly because I has indicated that uh, Sonia, the German shepherd I grew up with, uh, she was a 100-pound female shepherd. Um, and, yeah, she was very loyal, as all German shepherds are, um, and really, really looked out for my sister and I. 
Um, and I just have some memories of when I was little. Um, and partly there's some pictures of things where I'd basically use her as a chair. Um, so, you know, whether it be like having a snack or like the TV, I could just sit down on her and she was quite tolerable of that. Um, but then one of the things that really struck me and continues to come to mind over the years uh, was some point, for whatever reason, she loved rocks. She generally liked to chase things, to retrieve things, but she loved rocks. And there was some point where we were on a trail um, and so we were throwing some rocks, my sister and I, um, and there was one that I picked up and I just put my hand back and so tenderly, delicately, she put her mouth over my hand. And in that simple act, it's just that love. Yes, she was expressing an element of like, she really wanted that rock. But there was just such a love and care in just that simple act of expressing her interest. So I don't know how much people, uh, well, for some of you I've known for a while, so you have a little better sense of these things. I don't know what perception people necessarily have me otherwise. Um, definitely in my childhood, I was really shy, like very timid, very quiet, um, but also observant and very sensitive. Um, that was certainly something you don't think much of as a kid, but as you get older, that becomes more apparent that you don't necessarily fit the mold. Um, so in many ways, I'm still sensitive, as perhaps evidenced by my face, but um, yeah, that's just kind of a little element of my childhood. Um, and I've always, always been, in some ways, just much like my parents and my mother in particular, pretty self-driven. Um, so even as a little kid, I would do things like I wanted to learn to tie my shoes. So I went through that whole process and basically I could get shoes that I could tie if I went through that. So I taught myself basically after my parents gave me some instruction how to tie my shoes. Uh, there was some point in uh, like preschool um, where we were asked to share like a story to bring in a book. Um, so I went home um, and I told my mother that I had to learn how to read. So there was a, the book, There's a Nightmare in My Closet. And over the course of that evening, went through the whole process of learning how to read it. Um, so that I again could share it with the class. Um, I think somewhere there might be some old cassette tape that my mother felt inclined to record. I think fortunately it's lost, for hopefully forever, but <laughs> somewhere out there there might still be that tape. Um, and I also remember like at the point I was probably six or seven, teaching myself how to ride a bike. There was a, like a sort of a training bike without uh, training wheels at like a kinder care, uh, one of those child care facilities in the area. Um, and I would just go out there each day we'd be outside and I would just keep trying to ride that keep trying to ride it um, Until I found my balance um, and then through also the fortune of my parents teaching me that you know the value of a dollar I had to learn well basically earn my own first bike uh, So I went through that whole process of earning things from chores and selling some other things in uh, some uh, garage sale um, to the point that I could then buy my own bike um, and then I remember the first time having done all this practice and there's still that hesitancy. So I went on the bike, I didn't have the training wheels 
and I rode right into the raspberry bushes that were alongside the driveway. And even then, I was like, oh, come on. You're like, you can do this. So I jumped back on the bike and then rode off. And in some ways, it just feels yeah, kind of appropriate to just the elements of life. Um, I would say that there's not times that I feel that I just jump back on. Uh, but at the same time, don't necessarily give up. And I think I'll just revisit that a little bit later as well. Um, so that's a little bit just of my early childhood. Um, and then really there's that period of adolescence. I'm sure many of us would rather not recall that time period. Um, <laughs> I had a very common experience, as I assume you did, of confusion, anger, insecurity, uh, things that I think are almost universal. Um, and yeah, it was a challenging time though. Um, I know that I've always had high expectations of myself. Uh, it's definitely been one of those things that has really both pushed me and held me back in many ways. Um, and I had that from an early age and certainly through my adolescence was no exception. Um, so at that time for myself was particularly challenging and kind of an early bloomer. Um, so basically having all those hormones raging through my body and not having the skills to really deal with them. Um, and I think really a lot of things I haven't fully grasped and yet there's this just general sense that through that time period that a lot of things that I kind of condemn myself for were from that time period. Um, yeah, it was really, really definitely very challenging. Um, I, like fifth grade, I would literally have a headache every day. Um, and it was only sometime in the last few years that it dawned on me that that was probably just from all the testosterone, like all the hormones going through my body. Um, and it's so much so that at some point I literally just gave up taking any medication for it because I knew no matter what I did, I'd have a headache. Um, so yeah, it was definitely, it was a challenging time. Um, and unfortunately, as I indicated, that there was kind of through that difficulty in transitioning, um, a lot of things that I just kind of let go of. Uh, so I was pretty self-driven. I had lots of things. I was really into nature. So I even started to make uh, collections of like seeds and like pressed uh, leaves, all sorts of things. I knew a fair amount about like plants outside. And all these things were things that I just kind of put behind me. Um, and in many ways, didn't really pick them up. I went on to school in ecology and such. But at the same time, there was kind of that way in which something was just kind of not taken away, but uh, misplaced. Um, and then just to make things even more interesting was the point of then reaching like 12 and suddenly like the hormones balanced. So you go through this period, you don't really feel yourself. There's so much confusion and almost like it just stopped. And at this point, I can appreciate the fact of like, okay, well, there was those difficulties, those hardships, but they didn't, they don't define me. But certainly at that time, there was just so much of that uncertainty and all that judgment really of the time that I'm, you know, particularly like fifth and sixth grade. Um, and yeah, I think particularly in that seemingly sudden and largely contrasting condition, um, I just didn't really know how to move forward or how to embrace the fact of, all right, like, yes, those things happen, but now I have a new opportunity. Um, 
And so I didn't really find that, unfortunately. It took really many years until like that was possible. Um, ultimately, like ended up really starting through that process though of this real investigation into what pain is. You know, we have the Four Noble Truths and like what is suffering. Um, well, I can say that I assume anyway, for many of you, that was what led you to the practice. I can definitely say that in my own time leading up to the practice, it was a deep investigation of samsara. Um, and in some of that early ex uh, exploration, um, I found myself in an English project. We were called upon to do a theme. And so I did one on pain. And it was probably the first time that I really vocalized lots of things that I've been going through, but in a way in which they weren't necessarily specific. Um, and a lot of it too was like focusing on a sense of loss. Um, somebody, I don't like goodbyes. Um, even up to this point, I really don't like goodbyes. Uh, and at an early age, you know, you just start to find yourself familiarized with this element of impermanence. Um, the people that we love, like, you know, pets, um, that they're not always going to be with us. Um, and in many ways, I, yeah, I really struggle with that. Um, knowing that those I loved in my own life, just at some point they come to an end. And there is an endless element to it, but in the immediacy of our lives, it's also very real that we know loss, in part because we know love. Um, and there's this real companion between those. Um, and in that deep sense of love, had difficulty coming to terms with that feeling of loss. So kind of moving on into like the high school years, I ended up becoming really increasingly isolated. Um, as I said, I was having difficulty really examining things. Um, one of the challenges of being in the Midwestern life is there's just things you don't talk about. Um, that was kind of my general upbringing. Um, some of it kind of the Scandinavian influence uh, and yeah, otherwise this is a way of like also just being a youth. Um, there's just things that you don't want to talk about because you don't realize that everybody else actually experiences similar things. Um, and so uh, yeah, I just found myself increasingly isolated. Um, went through a period of like major depression. Um, and yeah, a lot of weight loss and continued loss of interest. Um, yeah. I kind of reflected on that time. I know in having talked a little bit with people about it before, I sort of thought, well, I wonder if they think of this question of like, well, what, what do your parents do? Um, and I kind of have found myself thinking of like, I know that they were there for me. Um, I know that in some ways too, they also like pursued things that they knew would be ways in which I'd be more likely willing to, you know, come out of that box. Um, and even thinking back of at some point where I reconnected with like a childhood friend um, and really in retrospect have, I think a very clear understanding that like my mother contacted his mother. Um, and ultimately like there was a way though in which the beauty was that we reconnected. Um, and through that process, like I got to open up with some other people um, and started to kind of have a shift. Um, and really then in my senior year was this element of kind of coming out of my shell. Um, and finding out the other challenges of that. Um, so I assume some of you too, there's ways in which you want to connect with your peers. Um, and then there's that beauty of the, well, although false sense of freedom, 
uh, ways in which you feel uninhibited by things like alcohol, uh, marijuana, things that at least for me became both ways of release, um, but in some way also ways of investigation. And if nothing else, there's not saying that it's recommended, but it does shift your perspective on things. Um, kind of those elements of voices in my head, you know, they drop out. Um, and the challenge being that if you turn to them for that purpose, ultimately, um, there is a way in which you depend on them for that. Um, and they get louder. <laughs> you haven't been listening. And so they really can get pretty hostile about the matter. Um, <laughs> and so it's kind of the overall process that I found myself uh, experiencing. Um, and at the same time, there was an increased like curiosity and investigative element in that. Um, so not only having a way in which knowing that things can be different, but also be curious about what's going on. Um, I think it was always in some ways curious and investigative, but at that point in particular, it's really started to be a shift in terms of like my own experience um, and just my own views in a relationship to the world. Um, so finishing up, I ended up going to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, really, it was a, one of those decisions that changed the course of my life in ways I hadn't really thought about until recently. Kind of seeing all the different pieces, but seeing of like really that event facilitated so many things thereafter. Um, so I went to school um, at Madison. I went initially for the tour. Um, and just knew when I was there that that's where I wanted to go. Um, I did get accepted, I did attend, ultimately graduated. Um, but for those that are familiar, it's definitely a party school. Um, if you want to find a party every day, you can. Um, and if you're hosting them, you definitely can especially. So um, <laughs> I didn't have any challenge with you know, finding ways to have a, a release from that. Um, I love having grown up in Wisconsin. There's things that I love about the, a passionate element of that culture. Um, and part of that comes with its pros and cons of like this notion in which like you work hard and you play hard. Um, and there's ways in which that can be taken to extreme measures, um, as I decided that I would also engage with. <laughs> um, and had various people that were willing to do that with me. Um, and it's an interesting thing though. I mean, some of it is like, I know that there's, you know, we talk about true friends on the way. Um, and yet at the same time, like even in those conditions, like there are people that I have a really deep connection to even to this day. Um, some of it is like having going through those times together. Um, but at the same time, yeah, you're, even if you don't talk about them, there's a way in which you're working out some of the same things. Um, so, yeah, in that time, I was using all sorts of alcohol and smoking a lot of yeah, marijuana. Um, and at some point, basically, like, as I mentioned, there's ways in which if you're not listening, things get really hostile and all those things that you're ignoring want to come forth. Um, they don't just go away, as I found over time. Um, and you do kind of feed them by ignoring them. Um, there's a way in which you can ignore them and that you're not basically accommodating them. But if you're avoiding them, this really is its own energetic way of feeding them. Um, and so ultimately, it was like two weeks shy of my 20th birthday. I had a nervous breakdown. Um, I was visiting a friend of mine. We were just you know, hanging out. And it was just all of a sudden this 
way in which I felt like I was having a heart attack. Um, you know, I ended up saying to my friend, like, okay, I think if we could call the ambulance. Um, so, you know, did that, went to the hospital, and ultimately, you know, there wasn't inherently anything inherently wrong physically with me. Um, but it was that way of just like things really having to come forth. Uh, it was an incredibly difficult time, um, but there was a way in which through going, going through that process, um, uh, strange clarity kind of emerged through all of it. Um, and some of it I found, as you're talking about some of that motivation before, uh, I was getting like, pretty socially involved in various things, like you know, trying to eat healthy, do various things to really change my life. Um, and yeah, found that there was a way in which I could understand people's challenges, their difficulties in ways I hadn't really been aware of prior. Um, I think in, in my intuition, you know, you're, I was aware of various things, but just to have a sense of like the experiential process. Um, and yeah, so although having that, I actually at that point found my way to a Vipassana uh, practice. There was at some like local Unitarian church. The first time I literally walked over there, I don't know how far it was, I walked a lot of those days. Um, and yeah, got some exposure. Of course, had no idea what was going on. It wasn't like going to Hoenji the first time and you at least got some sort of instruction. I pretty much walked in, just tried to follow along. Um, and then ultimately talked to the woman who was leading that group who uh, encouraged me to uh, take a course that she was going to be leading at the local technical college. So it was one of those six-week courses, much like Deep Presence. Um, and you go in and you start to learn about the practice, the ways in which you can have tools that really allow you to meet, process, and experience your life. Uh, and the one thing I found, however, is that I knew I had a lot of anxiety at that time. So you sit down and guess what you find? <laughs> pronounced anxiety. <laughs> so I found that that wasn't necessarily the time for me to try to do that. Um, there's ways in which I think the practice itself didn't feel quite right, but it was just also not yet. Um, I wasn't quite ready to really delve in yet. Um, and yeah, and then, unfortunately, it went back into like ways in which like I didn't know how to deal with my experience. So like really, 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 basically became like a heavy, heavy drinker. Um, and yeah, you know, as I said, like there was friends that like you know we definitely partied, but I sort of stood out as somebody of like definitely very self-destructive. Um, and in some ways, they sort of joke with me about it. In other ways, you know, I definitely know that it was like deep concern. Um, they would certainly, you know, also make sure to kind of see after me at times. Um, and I don't know, a curious thing throughout all of that, I mean, <laughs> is that although highly un not recommended, um, there was a way in which like all that process was like learning about coping mechanisms. And I found over the years of like, you know, there's a way in which like it can be talked about in a negative way. And I understand why. Um, oftentimes there's this element in which we take them on, but we don't know how to let go of them. They help us get through a time period, but then we don't know how to move on. Um, and so at least I was becoming aware of some of these things and just really trying to take action to like do as I was doing previously after having had a nervous breakdown, like trying to like really 
yeah, just allow things to change, to find a new way of living my life, to find other methods. And I didn't, wasn't necessarily productive in finding other methods, but I sort of found this in that, although in appearances people might not seem to be tending to things, it doesn't mean they aren't really engaging with it. And kind of the example I can think of that really highlights this is there was during that time period, like two movies that I kind of watched over and over. Um, there was Pulp Fiction um, and The Royal Tenenbaums. In some ways they seem like very different movies, but really they're stories of redemption. That's the essence of them. They're about redemption. And that's what I really needed to have a message of at that time. And through that process, even at some point of, in the movie Pulp Fiction, there's some time where uh, Samuel L. Jackson, they're in the diner and he's talking about, you know, having this, what he says alcoholics refer to as a moment of clarity. Um, and at some point had what I can only say a moment of clarity. If nothing else, as I said, it was like in some ways a deep investigation of samsara. Um, and something opened. And I wasn't ready to really move through it in many ways, but at the same time it was so clear. And it was the first time that I think I was conscious of the fact of being able to have an idea and in some ways to be able to really hold it. You're not containing it. You know, it's just this element of it's in your hands. You can rotate it. You can look at it. You can get different perspectives about what it really is. And so much so that even years later, I was able to just look further into that. Um, and I ended up writing a poem. Um, I just kind of cut out, I'll cut out the first part of it because it's really more of the element of like the context in which I was engaging in all these self-destructive behaviors. Um, but, you know, I titled it A Moment of Clarity due to the inspiration of the Pulp Fiction. Um, and there's a part in there in which really it's, I would say, a description of samsara. Despair erodes what hope remains into the silted rivers of my mind grown thick with emptiness, frustration, and pain wrought through time. Remnants of self-control guide me through this murky flow, seeking release from barrenness in a world of tormented souls. So although even not at that time, like there was that part of me that really knew what I was in, I just didn't know the way to get through it. Um, and fortunately at that point, at least through having that experience, like did what I could to kind of keep chipping away at kind of trying to tend to those things. Um, and at some point, you know, was finishing up school um, and was fortunate enough to have a TA um, for an ecology of fishes class that worked uh, for the Cornell Biological Field Station. Um, he was somebody that was able to connect me basically with a job that led me out east. Um, previously, I had looked at schools out east, actually even at Syracuse, at Cornell, um, and yeah, so there was this element in which also not yet. Uh, being called to a certain area, partly my cousin lived in the area so she could take me around to look at the schools, uh, but yeah, to find my way back uh, ultimately at the time that was right. Um, and so I ended up with that job and I knew part of it why I was interested in it was one needing a job of course but also the fact that I knew for things to change I needed to leave where I was so yeah it might be surprising I used to be really 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 quiet <laughs> um, 
I remember actually in that time of like, you know, depression when I was in high school, where I started to get really into Bob Dylan, and there's a song, Watching the River Flow, and the very first line is, what's the matter with me? I don't have much to say. Um, and I seem to have gotten over that issue, um, but <laughs> yeah, it's something that in many ways, like I'm grateful for the fact that it now at least I'm able and willing to articulate what I'm going through. Um, so I know that the residents here um, have fine times still talk with me. As I mentioned, it's been one of the really rewarding experiences of being here to engage with people in that way, to meet them in their own experience and to share mine. Um, and kind of looking ahead like this way in which the, the things of my past or even my present experience aren't really mine. Um, they're things that when called for are things to offer. Um, you just never know. There's times I'm really surprised at the things that I'll say. Um, I don't think about them. They just kind of come forth and sometimes they just seem to be, you know, that lid that matches that box and really just suits the occasion. Um, so it's been one of the gifts in part, like, as I said, partly being able to like come forth and just simply be okay with talking about these things. Um, to know that other people might not have had the same experiences, but there are those that have had quite similar ones. Um, and to simply, if nothing else, offers somebody the fact of like, they're just not alone. Um, I think that was one of the real lessons of that time period in my life is that immense sense of isolation. And it really is, yeah, it feels rather condemning, especially when you have all those other inner dialogues and narratives about yourself. Um, so in finding the way to open up and finding the ways to really connect with people, I found that there's been a gift to just simply, uh, simply offering a word. Um, so Within a short time of uh, uh, ending up in the Syracuse area, uh, north of Syracuse is Oneida Lake where the Cornell Field Station is. Um, but after I started that position, uh, two months later, uh, my grandmother died. Um, and this is somebody who I'll highlight um, in just a little bit, but is an immense influence on my life. Um, I hope that some of you have had this experience of one of those true bodhisattvas. Uh, the, you know of the importance and yeah, just the gift of their presence in your life at that time, but really in her passing, it has become more and more and more apparent. Um, yeah, really a guiding light. And in some ways, all she had to do is be herself. Um, so I'll talk a little bit more about that, but it was definitely a challenging loss. And that was really ultimately what like, got me to like, finally really, really, really decide to go to like, the Zen Center of Syracuse. I knew that I was interested in at least in meditation, and I had a curiosity about Zen. Uh, one of the things that, about being in college, you know, at least there was a Buddhist studies uh, class, classes, um, and I was definitely interested in that. And one of the gifts was my uh, second class that I took was Tibetan Buddhism, um, but the professor was actually a Buddhist practitioner. So we had actually a very small class. I think it was almost the point they were gonna cancel it, but thankfully they didn't. Because uh, everybody that was there was genuinely interested in, not just that, it wasn't a study, it was an academic to them. Um, and he was able to facilitate really engaging it in a way in which you know I hadn't been able to look at some of those things before. 
Um, and then ended up taking another class. Unfortunately, he ended up having to leave the university um, just because, unfortunately, downsizing, really. Um, they brought somebody else in from a, actually the same technical college where I went to the Vipassana course. Um, and for him, it was academic. Um, and it was really unfortunate. It was a Buddhist thought class. Um, and so one of the projects, though, I was like, okay, I've learned about other sects of Buddhism, but I didn't know about Zen. So I tried to investigate more about it. And I didn't know why, but I was just interested. And it's really beyond my comprehension at this point of like how I couldn't have fine materials. I was at a huge school. I mean, books alone. I mean, how many Zen books have come out since, you know, even since the 30s, um, and particularly since the 50s and 60s. And yet somehow, I just didn't encounter any of those materials. Um, and yet here I found myself going to the Zen Center of Syracuse. And at that point, it was right. I wasn't meant to engage with it in an intellectual manner. Um, I was fortunate that the Dharma provided the circumstances I needed in which depriving me of that way and distorting my understanding by wordiness and intellection. Um, so I was able to go to that class and a few weeks into it, I was watching um, the movie Alive. So I imagine some of you know that story of the um, I don't know, soccer, football team, whatever it was, who uh, their plane crashed in the Andes Mountains. Um, and, you know, that circumstances in which some people die, like injured, um, and, you know, having to resort to cannibalism, things like that. But, like, the thing that really, really, really impacted me was there was this person who, throughout the time since the crash, had been basically on, like, a gurney. Like, he wasn't able to move. Like, his leg was broken. Um, and there was some point where he was meeting his death. And he just starts to cry. And his friend asks him, like, what's the matter? And he just says, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And then my Zen practice began. There were all those seeds, all the catalysts leading me to it. But that was the moment where it really started. And in that process, I started to go to uh, Sunday services to the uh, Thursday evenings. Um, at that point, I was living at the field station. So I had to commute. It was about a half hour drive each way. Um, so it was something that, you know, it certainly was a factor. I had to kind of look at things in terms of getting out work early um, and then going to Hoenji on Sundays. And yeah, I just found my way of really being part of the community. I didn't really see myself as a practitioner at the start. In some ways, I don't actually now. <laughs> Um, but I just kept being called back. I didn't really have to think about it. I just kept going. Um, and yeah, so much so, I guess I said I was starting that fall and, you know, by the spring, like went to my first session, uh, and just kept going and kept going and kept going. Um, and then, you know, being this still fairly timid, shy person, you know, Roshi encouraged me to at least attend Obon at DBZ. Um, I actually remember my first time being here. I don't I remember certain things about Obon and the general experience, but one of the things I do remember is like in that shyness and that kind of wanting to avoid like crowds in particular, I camped out in uh, Sangha Meadow. <laughs> so that was my first introduction to being at DBZ was like being part of the ceremony, but otherwise putting myself in a much more isolated position. Um, 
And I mean, that's what I needed at the time. Um, but even then, actually, when I think back of like meeting Ryoju um, and Mark, um, at that time, you know, he introduced himself as John. Um, and it's funny, you know, just those little connections. I didn't really get to know him till later on when then I returned really for Kesse's. I did have the uh, fortune of doing one session anyway with Edo Roshi. Uh, it was uh, Holy Days 2009. Um, and it was just one of those times. There's that convergence of not just the, uh, the different holy holidays at that point, but in that particular week was the full moon. Um, and this real transition between the winter into spring. Uh, and just that transformation of that time period and just the, yeah, the power of the setting and the, the people and, you know, of Edo Roshi, and it's certainly quite a presence. Um, I mostly remember my experiences of going to Dokusan with them as like going into the dragon's lair. Uh, I'd open the door, I'd walk in, and the first thing I hear is that bellowing breath. <laughs> and... Yeah, it was, it was a, a real gift at the same time, though. Part of me was just scared shitless. Um, but it was at the same time what I needed to kind of just really push me through. Um, yeah, it was a really physically uncomfortable session. Um, I took every last single keisaku that was offered. I received it. Um, <laughs> and so much so that my person that I was rooming with noted when I changed my shirt that I had some bruising on my back. But... Um, yeah, it was ultimately a really wonderful experience. Um, and I did feel a calling to come here. Um, but finding out that, at least at that time, that it wasn't quite yet time. Um, there was a point where I thought I wanted to come to the fall Kesse in 2009. Um, and didn't end up doing that. I went through this like immense clarity of yes. And then immense clarity of no. Yes, no. Um, and I was like, oh, this, I'm feeling a little, you know kind of schizophrenic here, like, what's really going on? And I was like, oh, okay, now when they come together and I can see them as a whole, it's, yes, I want to do this, but not at this time. Um, and I ended up not doing Kese then, returning later, and in the meantime, having time when I was able to be with family. Um, my aunt, shortly thereafter, when I determined I wasn't going to be coming, uh, was diagnosed with cancer. Um, and I ended up spending time with her and my uncle. Um, less than a year later, she ended up dying from the, uh, colon cancer. Um, so it was really a gift to be there with her and him at that time. Um, it really ended up being something that I became very, very close to him. Uh, my aunt was really wonderful, though. I know that he absolutely, yeah, he loved her to no end. Um, and actually, in thinking of like the time when she actually passed, there was a number of us that were present there. Uh, and it came to the point, it was evident, you know, she was going to pass. The moment was upon us. And so my uncle said, like, I love you, Linda. And she just, all of a sudden, she comes to and says, I love you, too. And that was her last breath, was saying, I love you, too. Yeah, so... I spent time with him and otherwise ultimately like came back to, uh, to Syracuse. I became a resident at Hoenji. Uh, certainly had times. Anytime I would go uh, to Minnesota where my aunt and uncle lived, um, I actually, of all things, I essentially had my own room in their house. Uh, it just sort of worked out that way in, at some point and it was kind of, they just ultimately referred to it as my room. Um, and it ended up being that space where I always stay when I go with, uh, be with my uncle 
all those years afterwards as well. Um, he ultimately uh, died while I was here. Um, and I do really miss him as well. And there was just something of being through that process of grieving together. Um, and we'd certainly talk about it, but just being present with one another. It was really definitely what was the most influential in like sharing that bond and something that's like, you know, I'm really grateful. Like, in some, yeah, it was my uncle. Um, in some ways, he was a friend and a mentor and somebody that I would, you know, I'd talk to with some frequency. Um, so really grateful to have had that time as well. So ultimately, as I was saying, like doing essays and such, and I did that in fall of 2011, both of them in 2012. Um, and in that process, like having this sense of wanting to be ordained, um, even in my childhood, I can have memories of wanting to become a priest. And I don't really know when, I don't know the context. All I know is that I never witnessed the context. I'd never encountered some other priests or father or uh, ordained nun as well in any tradition that really seemed I connect with. I didn't have a connection with any of the ones that I encountered. Um, and I think it was less to do with them um, and just more to do with the fact of like there was something else that I just wasn't finding. Um, and as I indicated, ultimately found in going to, uh, to Hoenji. Um, but as a so much in my life, there's this element of not yet, not yet, not yet. I don't know what your experience is of that, but there's things that I have a sense of that and they're true, and yet I'm just not quite in the position where I'm ready and life is ready with providing the opportunity. Um, so I ended up in a, a long-term relationship, which was really a blessing as well. Um, it wasn't it, you know, it had its challenges, as all relationships do, but it was ultimately something which, like, we acknowledge each other of being uh, growing partners and best friends. Um, somebody, I, well, I actually haven't talked to her in, like, five years. Um, and in part, my time here has been kind of revolving around, like, understanding in part that relationship, but mostly my conditions that were mm, limiting to the relationship. Uh, and yeah, there's been a lot of unfolding in this process. Like that relationship ended in fall of uh, 2016. I came for Kese. Um, and at that point was pretty broken and downtrodden. Um, that's where there's a line that, for whatever reason, it stuck out in my mind for years, perhaps as I mentioned my deep investigation of samsara, but from the Diamond Sutra of, furthermore, if virtuous men and women who receive this teaching are downtrodden, their unfortunate destiny is the inevitable result of karma committed in their past mortal lives. By virtue of their present misfortunes, the effects of their past will be worked out, and then they will be in a position to realize supreme enlightenment. So at that time, it was really, I feel there's something in that that was like, it became clear to me, like, even all those years of being together, I wasn't willing to give up some sense of being able to come back here to ordain. Um, and ultimately requested Roshi to, to ordain me as a, a monk. Um, 
which then occurred in uh, March of 2017. Um, but another thing that I wanted to acknowledge in that fall in particular um, was uh, my gratitude to uh, Chigan Roshi. I know that I've shared this with some other folks uh, since the time, um, but in that fall there was the Golden Wind session. You gave a, a talk um, and you spoke of your own experience at some point of being in the Zendo and having tears want to come forth and suppressing them and acknowledging that by virtue of not allowing them to come forth when they were ready, that you had to pay for that over the course of years until you were able to come to the point that in that practice through that time that you could ultimately let them go. Um, and in knowing my circumstances ended up talking to me directly and encouraging me after session of like, if tears come, just let them fall. And it was a real gift. Um, I'd, yeah, I had lots more t tears that needed to fall. Um, I was fortunately with decreasing amount, but I think literally for that, every day for the next seven weeks, I cried every day. And there would be times of like, all I would do is basically like be in Samu and then just have to stop and cry and then go back to work. And maybe it'd be that morning, maybe some other time, but just like kind of that cycle. And it was definitely really a purifying thing though. I think some of it, as I noted, like all the ways in which in my life I had essentially been suppressing my own experience, my own emotions, like dulling it, essentially not wanting to be open to my own views of myself also cut me off from my own experience. Um, and in that process was we able to have the ability to really just be with that. Um, and it's been an ongoing gift. It's something that I've certainly learned in others, but that was the most direct and immediate experience through my own emotions to really just be able to be present with them and just allow them to be, to come and to go. Um, and also uh, to uh, Jimpo Roshi, I want to acknowledge um, in the Mondo process. So it's really a process of um, what they term emotional koans. Um, it's a great companion to our practice and that it at least gives some, well, I guess a method towards really being able to engage with things. There can be elements in which, you know, talk about dwelling in the inner void and stuff, where there's a disconnect between our insight experience and enacting living in our lives. Um, and he could see where I was at that point um, and uh, had me on what they termed the hot seat, which isn't, <laughs> it's just more of his sense of humor, quite honestly, um, but an element where you engage indirectly. It's really a group experience, um, but there's people that he brings up and like really has a direct experience with them, like, you know, engages with them. Um, and you know, it was really a, a fortunate thing. Um, I think it was at the point that I really started to have a much, much better sense of like what I learned later of like what underlied so much of my self-destruction was basically shame. As I mentioned, all these things that I regretted. Well, for a long time, I think it was far worse than just regret. I mean, there were basically points of condemnation. Um, yeah, I have, yeah, can be very, very, very critical, particularly of myself. Perhaps others have experienced some of my criti criticism as well, but um, it's something that through the process I've really been able to start to, to lessen that grasp, to be able to see the fact of like, as I said earlier, like, okay, things happen, but they're not defining. Um, they're things that, you know, I can learn from, you know, that by virtue of our, their present misfortunes, the effects of their past will be worked out. So there were things that I needed to confront, things that I needed to go through 
um, even if I didn't feel that I wanted to, or they were somehow a reflection of me as a human being. Um, and then I guess really in part now coming back to my grandmother because of the fact that like throughout my time here in particular, um, the greatest lesson I received from her was radical acceptance. And I can't even really quite explain it. Like there's a way in which like I didn't know I received it and have been increasingly aware of just the profound power of it. It just doesn't seem to have any sense of limitation, time, you know, distance, whatever, like they're all irrelevant. It is completely unbounded. I mean, it was just from the depth of her heart. And yeah, I really do feel that it's one of the purest expressions of love. To know that there's oftentimes there's nothing that we have to do but simply hold the space where somebody can just be wherever they are, whatever they're going through, to accept and embrace it. And then I think that's really the only place where we can really genuinely respond. I mean, if we go in with the notions of like, oh, you know, if only you did this, only you did that, oh, like maybe if I did this, it would help. And there was never any of that. She'd be helpful just simply by being present. And I'm eternally grateful for that. Eternally. So, I kind of wish I could be a little bit more succinct, but... Um, <laughs> so, coming back to like being here in the long-term training. Um, yeah, I came here, was ordained March 2017. Formally left residence uh, after Oboen this year. Um, but found myself back here. There were still some things in going out in the world that needed to really start to, in some ways, not just cl clarify, but accept what had been clarified. <laughs> um, and it was definitely a very interesting and challenging process. Um, I think part of it is like having done Kesseys before, there's ways in which, we, in which you do Kesse that there's certain things that you don't necessarily have to confront. Over a shorter time period, it's kind of easier to let go of various things and de just dedicate yourself to what you're doing at that time. Um, but at least for myself, I found over the longer period, there's just this convergence. So many parts of my life just came together. They seemingly disparate part of my lives, different stages, like different, yeah, living in different places, like different groups of friends and all sorts of things. Uh, and those ways in which all the things that I had not quite tended to, um, they indeed as they had previously, you know, reared their head. Um, and having come here at a time where, you know, in that fall beforehand, um, of, you know, real sense of loss of a significant relationship, um, found the interesting ways in which there were so many other things that came forth. Um, as I mentioned before about like Mondo Zen and shame, um, I think it must have been that fall was there was, a, they had a, their first Mondo session. Um, and I was paired with uh, one of the former residents, uh, Reifu, um, and uh, Jimpo Roshi's sister um, goes by Katma, um, basically an abbreviation of her first name and Madhyana. Um, so, yeah, it was really one of the most wonderful things of that time to be paired with these two people. Um, and that's where I was mentioning things about shame. Um, and, you know, if you think back to earlier when I started this about my parents, I always knew I was loved. Um, 
but through the process of delving into these things, came to the realization of knowing that I was loved, but feeling wholly unworthy of it. And there was an immense freedom in just being able to acknowledge that. There was one of the, um, the um, priests in the uh, Hollowbone Sangha. Uh, I can picture him, I unfortunately can't think of his name, but um, he talked about this and the fact of like, by revealing it, you disempower it. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Mind you, at the same time in disempowering it, um, there was also ways in which I had to confront a lot of things that were built around it and within it. Um, and essentially went in what I'll term like kind of great hell. <laughs> um, yeah, I learned a lot through that whole process though. Um, there was points where my first thought of the day, I've heard that theoretically this is not possible. Um, there's a realization after you wake up, but my first thought in the day was literally fuck. <laughs> like just the element of having to like deal with another day in which I felt horrible. <laughs> um, but yeah, saw through that process. Um, it didn't last forever. And at the same time, there was just a way in which like, no matter the difficulty to just step forward. Um, but I also finding the ways in which like, you know, more and more science acknowledges like how things are embodied. It's literally in our bodies. Um, and that was some of the challenges that I really found in looking back on like my youth and like depression. There's ways at uh, some point in which like, I don't know if in some ways it was because of things that preceded it or just the simple fact of like my genetic karma would have it that at some point like physiologically like I would have certain chemicals expressed in my brain and for that it would basically result in things like depression anxiety um, and through the time and being here really 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 delved into that um, and at this point like have a very different relationship to it uh, yeah I mean I found there's things that you'll hear about particularly in yoga um, but like things that just seem to have been released uh, where yeah, I just have times where I just basically feel like really sick and nauseous and stuff and you wonder if you're getting ill or what it is but really in knowing the context of things and like reflecting on it finding it was like basically yeah things releasing like emotional whatever you want to call them trauma or otherwise things in the body um, that I hadn't been able to like really deal with or been let go of um, and it yeah it's been an immense process of just really kind of releasing these hindrances hindrances, and like purifying. Um, and one of the things that, you know, one of my, my dear Dharma brothers, Weekend, um, has practiced here for some years now. Actually, he came in just before I returned in March of 2017 and started residence. Um, but one of the things that he said to me was that, you know, no matter what, that I would just keep showing up. Maybe I was in the best mood. I can be a little moody. Um, <laughs> But I just kept doing it and giving my all and giving my all and giving my all. And for, even for him saying that was something that he needed to see, um, that it had been a lesson for him. Um, but at the same time of like, you know, not knowing that, um, you know, just each day you get up and, you know, some of you just kind of push through, but sometimes it's just the element of like, yeah, you're pushing, but at the same time you're pulling. You're really allowing yourself to like say, okay, like we just have to get through this. Just, you know, get to the next step, the next step. And sometimes it is that you're just getting out of bed, like kind of that feeling would pass at times. Um, just the mere act of just saying, okay, this is how I feel at the moment. 
Um, and yeah, so I guess really what I want to acknowledge kind of to close out here um, is like the, we'll call it the post thousand days. Um, and so there was immense power in having that time period, um, but then really being able to have the period thereafter in which you've completed your training. Um, but then there's just, I don't know what to say, except the fact that like really feeling that my practice came to life over the course of that period following, um, and especially over the course of this year. Um, so many ways in which, you know, I've, yeah, I found a challenge like being here during the pandemic, particularly in the early times. We didn't have a teacher coming. There weren't events. There wasn't another Sangha members. It was just the residents that were able to be here through that difficult process of even getting people through the door, figuring out, okay, we don't know what to do, but we know this about, you know, the pandemic and like what ways we can at least offer a safe environment to practice. Um, and, you know, it still had its challenges. Um, one being in a position where, uh, by virtue and part of my time here and having been put already in the Shika role prior to that as well, like, you know, kind of had to do my best to step up um, and not necessarily feeling adequate to the task um, and would say falling short certainly at various points, um, knowing that my own difficulties and being able to like face the situation and be able to really be a support of others also, you know, created its own challenges for myself and others. Um, and yet somehow in the whole process, like, something just sort of changed at some point. And I found even in like the time of coming back here where, yeah, just realizing a tenderness for myself. I and mean, this is something I don't even necessarily remember the last time in my life where I felt a genuine tenderness towards myself, for myself, within myself. Um, and yeah, in part seeing that like, by virtue of having all those challenges, times where I couldn't like, didn't know what to do, that the effects that it was having on other people and having in this ways in which engaging with the residents that, yeah, to see that mirrored back to me, to know at times just those subtle ways in which like, okay, something you say you do or just your energy. There's just something embodied in that way that as little, you know, causes them their own challenge. Um, and yeah, it's been definitely that real gift, as I mentioned before, the Sangha, you know, that mirroring. Um, and then other things of like, as I said before, of like having to come back now, because there's things that it's like, all right, I can see them. I just don't like what I see. <laughs> and having to come back in part to be like, okay, I actually do see it. I don't like it. And I'm trying to create an alternative. And that's only causing trouble for myself and other people. Um, and seeing that's not really in my intention. Um, and to see that I can't find some sort of assurance in other people. You know, that's one of the things of having so long of just viewing myself so negatively to like feel better, you, you have to like seek it from other people. Well, they can't really offer it either. They can offer support, they can offer their open hearts, like all the warmth and like love that you can imagine. And at the same time, it's never gonna be enough. And to really see that I can find it within myself. It's something that's still available. I wasn't able to access it for so long, but now I actually feel this opportunity to really step forth, to look upon like, you know, whatever lies ahead, um, to actually feel encouraged by, you know, challenges, 
to find the ways in which like those challenges, like I learned so much about myself and about other people to really learn like what real faith is, real faith and a way in which it's really not in any particular thing. Uh, it manifests. And I had found in talking to Roshi is like, oh, I could only describe it as it's not something you have in anything or of anything. And yet it holds everything. So in closing, I'd just like to acknowledge in part, I just found myself reflecting on one of the people that I've really grown to love here over the years is Geno, and she's given Dharma talks over the years. Um, and one of the things she talked about was that whole process of having to learn how to allow herself to experience all of life. Um, you're getting kind of caught in these things in which you really only feel a sense of negativity. Um, and you repeat this process over and over and over. But to get to the point where you can allow yourself to have other options, that you can be vulnerable, you can open up to the possibilities to experience other things with people and view yourself in other ways. Um, and I really appreciated that from her. And then in that process, really talking about like, after all those years of practice, after all those years of struggle first, that like the second half of her life has been just so much better. And in some ways that's kind of it. I don't know how long I'll be alive. And yet at the same time, regardless of time, I just feel like a new beginning, new possibilities in what can be ahead. I don't have to script it. Um, I have things, of course, that call to me, things that I'd like to still experience in, in this life. Um, at the same time, to be really open and aware of like what is presenting itself at this time. Um, and yeah, being open to that, seeing where it leads and having a real sense of just possibility the unbounded possibility of life. Um, and that's been really the thing of uh, ultimately of like taking away from my time here, of this way in which like really confronting myself and ultimately sharing with all of you has been completely life transformative. I really would not be here without this practice. As I said, like I was pretty self-destructive. I wasn't intentionally trying to kill myself, but ultimately I'm amazed that I didn't die. And to be in an environment in which, yeah, to have this wonderful chance simply to live this life together, to have this practice together, and simply to share it in all its pain and all of its joys has been truly, truly, truly a gift. So, I thank you. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.